It's the 4th of June, 2016, and this is episode 295. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. It's Stephanie here with you today. And Andreas. Hi, Andreas. Well, it's just you and me today. Adam's out, but we figured we would get together for a catch-up show and um, yeah, just sort of start talking freeform and see where we go. It's an exciting time, as always, in Bitcoin. Things changing so fast and so much going on that uh, it's hard to know where to start and what to talk about. What's on your mind? <laughs> well, yeah, that's what we were just sort of talking about off the air. I have a confession to make to our listeners and to you and to whoever else. Um, sometimes I really feel like the world of Bitcoin is just accelerated and moved past me. You know, maybe I've been walking and it's been running or something like that. But I feel like, I don't know, I'm I'm left behind in the dust sometimes, meaning that I don't I don't really feel like I have a great grip on what's going on. I mean, all I hear about now is Ethereum and the DAO and all that stuff and blockchain. Nobody even seems to want to say the word Bitcoin anymore. It's all blockchain and Ethereum stuff. It's just such a different world than when I first got into Bitcoin. I don't mean to sound like I'm stuck in the past or anything, but maybe I am a little bit. (laughs) And if so, it's just because this world has moved and changed so fast. Anytime I do hear about Bitcoin now, it's it's more like these grand mergers and acquisitions (laughs) and like, you know, things that are happening on a, a huge scale that are kind of integrating with the existing financial fintech world. To be honest, that's not the stuff that is where my expertise lies or what really excites me about Bitcoin or excited me at the beginning. And also, I never really jumped on board with Ethereum to begin with. So I feel kind of caught and stuck. Does that make sense? I think it does. But I, I think the, the real issue here is the narrative in that Back when we started doing this show, there was no Bitcoin media and Bitcoin wasn't really in the media. We were the Bitcoin media. Absolutely. And so we set the narrative. And for a very long time, the narrative was set by the amateurs. Not just meaning non-professionals, but amateurs from the original meaning of the word, those who simply love this craft, right, who enjoyed Bitcoin for what it was. And we really had a a very small, relatively homogeneous community that was relatively focused on a specific vision. And if we did pop up in the news, then they would call one of us and we would offer a comment (laughs) and we would set, set the narrative, right? And as you're saying this, I'm thinking that it doesn't feel like that was that long ago. And it wasn't. That was only like three years ago when we started doing the show. Right. It was um, April 2013. So we just kind of passed our three year anniversary with this. And already um, it's a completely different scene. Absolutely. Well, you know, what happened in the meantime is a billion dollars of investment came in and Bitcoin went from a ragtag group of amateurs and people involved in a in a community uh, non a non-professional community to something that is uh, a, a blend of a much more diverse community and among others it it now has some very very strong corporate voices some very uh, large amounts of money and money can drive the narrative. Money can drive the narrative a hell of a lot better 
than we can. Yeah, with our passion and stuff, who cares about that? <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of people do care about that. And certainly I, I have no shortage of, of uh, outlets in order to express my opinions. And I, I don't think you, you have any shortage either. But, but the point is that the broader media narrative, the mainstream media narrative, the commercial media narrative is driven by commercial interests and is driven by advertising and press releases and professional public relations companies and marketing budgets. And those are all driving a narrative that is very specific to the interests of the companies that are in the space. And those companies are not interested necessarily. Some of them are, most of them aren't. In the ideology of Bitcoin, they're interested in the profitability of Bitcoin. And if uh, Bitcoin isn't a suitable word for their marketing goals, they're going to pivot and do blockchain. And, and now we're even seeing some pivot and do Ethereum and other things like that because their primary interest is profiting and, and delivering a message that allows them to profit even more. But here's the funny thing, and here's where I'll disagree with you. That's not Bitcoin. The noise about Bitcoin or the noise about the broader space is mostly noise because there's hundreds of thousands of words being written about blockchain. But there's only one large scale blockchain that actually works. And even though they don't want to say its name, its name is Bitcoin. <laughs> and say, say its my name. name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even though they're writing and spending and writing about permissioned ledgers, there aren't any. There aren't any practical implementations of permissioned ledgers. There's only one permissionless ledger, and that is Bitcoin. And even though there is a lot of excitement about Ethereum and the DAO, and we should talk a bit about that. And I'm excited about those technologies. I'm absolutely excited about those technologies. Yeah. They haven't eclipsed Bitcoin. What they've done is they've expanded the space to now include new and different things on top of, in addition to Bitcoin and Bitcoin, a bit less, obviously, a bit less publicly, a bit more quietly marching on. Doubling the number of transactions is increasing the number of users, is increasing the number of applications, and people are building real stuff on Bitcoin, and a lot of really exciting technology is happening. It's just that nobody's writing about that technology. Yeah, why are they not? I mean, the only thing I hear people writing about is, oh, Bitcoin's the sky is falling, it's going to die. I mean, it's just so tired at this point. And sure, maybe there are some real problems about Bitcoin that that need to be fixed, potential issues that, that are going to come up with the code base. I could certainly see that, but it's just so different. Every wave of new people who come into Bitcoin find and isolate a problem they need to fix, and then they invent something to fix that misunderstanding a lot of Bitcoin. It's, it's kind of hilarious. I saw a post the other day that was saying, you know, uh, first there was Litecoin trying to fix the ASIC-friendly, CPU-friendly issue with script. Then there was Monero and Dash and Namecoin and Dogecoin. And, and each one comes along to fix one of the things that are broken in Bitcoin, broken within quotes. In the end, turns out really these things either didn't need to be fixed or are being fixed in Bitcoin itself or 
are not that consequential and certainly not differentiating enough to make any difference to Bitcoin. And each of these waves just simply washes up against the shore and then retreats again. Bitcoin marches on. I mean, that's the, that's the thing is the, the what are you going to write in the media narrative about the technologies that are coming out for Bitcoin? Who's going to write about the scaling potential of building the very first massively scalable micro and nano transaction cryptocurrency overlay lightning network and the fact that we're now beginning to see um, prototypes of that built and running and delivering hundreds of thousands to millions of transactions per second and granularity of transactions down to milliseconds and micropayments, Satoshis. Who's going to write about that? Well, the company that's going to make billions from that, of course. And there is no such company because it's an open source technology. So who's going to create the marketing budget to go out and and talk about that? Sure. And in 2013 and 2014, we're full of articles of like, hey, isn't this weird? There are these little communities of people who are trying to pay with this funny Internet money. And look at these people. Aren't they strange? You know, you can only write that so many times, right, before it loses its fascination. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree. Maybe it is the companies and the people who have a stake in driving adoption of these technologies that have the biggest incentive to write about them and to explain them to the masses, because that's a challenge, getting people to understand what value they're offering. So maybe it's inevitable that that things have changed, but I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I just feel like a fish out of like so out of place. I don't know. Like, why am what am I even doing here? Do I have anything to contribute? I'm not sure. My go-to solution has always been to stop reading the media narrative about Bitcoin and instead turn to looking at the actual technology and what is actually being built and developed, uh, look at the software, look at the Bitcoin improvement proposals. And I don't just do that for Bitcoin. I also do that for Ethereum and DAOs and all of the other technologies. But basically stop listening to what journalists write about the technology and look at the technology itself. And when you do that, all of the noise goes away and you see what's really happening behind the scenes. And what's really happening behind the scenes is an astonishing amount of innovation. The, the stuff that's happened in the last few months of 2015 and the first few months of 2016, seen more innovation in this space in Bitcoin, in, in the core technologies of Bitcoin, in the application layers above Bitcoin, than we saw in the last three years combined. And, and people have not even noticed this, primarily because a lot of this is still happening at an engineering level. And it takes about two years for that to trickle up to the application layer. So we're, we're just now seeing the benefits of BIP39 mnemonic phrases. That's where you can have your entire wallet backed up with 12 or 24 English words. And you can export and import that same seed to any wallet. Hierarchical deterministic wallets where your wallet can generate a near infinite number of addresses, one per transaction and have sub-accounts and things like that all from the same seed. Now, those technologies were developed in 2013. Yeah, and those are cool. I have to admit, those, I like those things. <laughs> I use them. <laughs> yes, and they're amazing. They're, they're amazing because they change the usability of this for simple users. Oh, definitely. Yeah, accessible, predictable, 
um, secure in a way that couldn't be done before. But look at the lag time. These were invented in 2013. We talked about these technologies on the first shows in 2013, and they didn't become part of mainstream user experience until the middle of 2015, I would say, when you started seeing almost all of the wallets adopt them. Now, there's similar there's technologies that, that were developed in, in 2014 and 2015 we haven't seen hit mainstream. And more importantly, in the middle of 2015 and beyond, we've seen this rush of innovation. And that will take another two years to trickle up, but has much more profound implications for the scalability of Bitcoin, the confidentiality of Bitcoin, the robustness of the protocol, as well as some of these technologies I'm particularly interested in because they accelerate the pace at which innovation can be introduced to the network. All right. Tell me, tell me about those. What are, can you name specific stuff? Well, we talked a bit about um, segregated witness in the past, and, mm -hmm. and it's a very difficult topic. I'm writing the explanation for the second edition of Mastering Bitcoin at the moment. And segregated witness is difficult to understand because while it's a, a relatively simple change, what it does is it takes the signatures out of the transaction. It does so in a way that has some profound effects in multiple parts of the Bitcoin system. It solves transaction malleability. That, that's really important for things like payment channels. But it also does another little trick that allows you to start versioning the script language. And that means that you can now do soft fork or backwards compatible upgrades to Bitcoin scripting language, even to things that are or were considered almost impossible to change. So you can change the way signatures are done. You can change the way the scripting language works easily with a, with a voting mechanism and a threshold. So here's a change get the miners to vote on it, get 95% of the last uh, thousand blocks, boom, new feature activated. All the old clients continue to work. The new clients can now do new things. And that is an amazing thing because what it will allow us to do is, is not only fix a lot of the things that may have been a bit clunky in the Bitcoin scripting language, but also upgrade it. And once that change became possible, the pipeline for future changes in the scripting language filled up really, really quickly. Almost immediately, there was a proposal to fix the scalability of signature verification, which was a big kludgy bug. And then some of the newest work that's come out of that, which I find fascinating, is Merkleized abstract syntax trees, confidential transactions, and deterministic predicate expressions. So tell me about the confidential transactions. I'm, I'm getting a little bog, bogged down in the details, but that's something I'm interested in. How does that work? Well, that's an innovation created by uh, Greg Maxwell, Peter Wool, and some of the other well-known cryptographers in the space. And it's an implementation of a type of uh, homomorphic encryption that allows you to encrypt the values in a transaction. So let me break this down. Right now, if you want to do confidentiality, privacy in Bitcoin, one of the ways you can do that is by using a coin join, a transaction that mixes inputs and outputs by multiple people together mm -hmm. so that it becomes harder to see who's making the transaction. And that's a really important tool for privacy. You can also very, very well obfuscate the addresses used in Bitcoin by using things like stealth addresses and 
reusable payment codes, which is BIP47. These are great tools. How do you even do that? Is there any like wallet that's accessible to someone like me that you can use stealth addresses with? Samurai Wallet actually does reusable payment codes, which is a a newer version of stealth addresses that creates payment channels with stealth addresses. Mm -hmm. It's the first implementation. They've made it open source with the hope that other wallets will implement it. It's a fascinating solution. And it will take a while to explain how that works, but basically it allows you to hide the addresses that you're using in a transaction and to maintain privacy of your addresses. Mm -hmm. That's all good, but there's one fundamental weakness with this, which is that the most important metadata in a transaction isn't the address, it's the value. If you can see the value, uh, how much you're spending and where you're spending it, it's, it's relatively simple to do statistical analysis on that, right? You can find a correlation. So if lots of people join a transaction together, well, you can figure out who's paying which merchant based on what values are being exchanged. Right. It's easier to tr track the value than it is the address. Because otherwise you would be restricted to only making transactions with people who are making transactions of the exact same amount, right? Right. So that's where confidential transactions comes in. Basically, it encrypts the values. And, and that's mind-blowing in itself because it simultaneously encrypts the values, but you can still validate as a client that all of the values add up and do not exceed the amount spent. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's through a brilliant piece of uh, cryptography um, that pushes the state of the art of cryptography quite significantly. Now, that, together with Schnorr signatures and stealth addresses, means that you can have extremely robust privacy in Bitcoin. Um, and that's something that previously would have taken a lot of work to introduce into Bitcoin. Well, because of segregated witness and the trick used there, you can now introduce confidential transactions into Bitcoin with a soft fork upgrade. And, and that's huge. It's basically opened the door to bring in really big changes like that, that affect really fundamental parts of Bitcoin in a positive way and allow you to bring big innovation. And, and nobody's noticed all this, and unless you're reading the developer mailing list and paying attention to the technical discussions. I read these articles by journalists and, and even by the community that say that Bitcoin development is stagnant and it blows my mind. I think I've really got caught up in that narrative. I'm glad we're talking about this because, yeah, hearing you say all these things is giving me a lot more hope and <laughs> making me a lot more excited about Bitcoin again. Um, because, yeah, I think I really bought into that whole narrative where nobody's covering this stuff that's actually the most exciting stuff. And this narrative is, is really bizarre because not only is Bitcoin producing a staggering amount of innovation, it's actually pushing the envelope of modern cryptography. Bitcoin is inventing things that are creating massive progress in the field of cryptography that didn't exist before. So Bitcoin is actually accelerated cryptography. Not only is it not stagnant, it's accelerating, but not only is it accelerating within Bitcoin, it's having a spillover effect. Um, some of the recent inventions, for example, could take features that exist in Bitcoin and export them to other things. Like, for example, when you browse and you use an SSL certificate, right? So you're doing SSL, you've got the little padlock in your browser. What you're doing there is your browser is validating a signature 
provided by a certificate authority that has verified the the public key essentially of that web server to tell you that it really belongs to them. So it's a digital signature. It's a very straightforward digital signature. Well, there's a proposal coming out of the Bitcoin community now that could actually allow SSL certificates to do multi-sig using the exact same technique that's used in Bitcoin. Wow. Again, wow, exactly. That's the only yeah. response you can <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> So you're t taking the scripting language of Bitcoin and using a, a thing that, that's being developed by a number of uh, the core developers um, is to export that scripting language and use it to process authorization, access control for objects and digital signatures in systems that are not Bitcoin so that they can have some of the same capabilities that Bitcoin has. And, and that's just the beginning. The, the other one that has really blown my mind is Merkleized Abstract Syntax Trees, or MAST, M-A-S-T. Okay. I've so, heard of Merkle Trees, but I've never heard of MAST. <laughs> so in Bitcoin, um, instead of paying a public key, you can also pay to uh, a script hash, uh, which is how we do multisig and a bunch of other scripts. That's P2SH, yeah. MAST takes that to a whole new level where basically... What you say is, here, the conditions to redeem this output are not a single script. They're a tree of scripts where different branches of the tree may have different conditions. So the tree could express a complex set of conditionals like it's either uh, two signatures from this multisig or one signature after 30 days from this address or a single signature from that address or three or five of these addresses and one signature from that address. Oh, yeah, that's super useful. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine that conditional. Now, you can write that conditional as a single script. But here's the brilliant thing. With MAST, what you do is instead... Each condition, each subcondition becomes a branch on the tree and you write the script as a Merkle tree where you only present the root hash of the conditions. And then you can say, well, I want to redeem based on this condition and here's a hash path that proves that this was one of the conditions that are in the tree. But the brilliant part is you have no idea what the conditions are. So you don't tell anyone what the conditions to redeem are. Nobody knows how deep this tree is. Nobody knows how wide this tree is. Uh, nobody knows how many conditions there are in the tree. And when you redeem by one condition, nobody knows what the other conditions that you didn't redeem by or that were optional are. All of those are hidden behind hashes. You only show your cards for the one condition that you actually redeem when you sign the output. Now... What can you do with that? I had no idea. <laughs> I, I, have no, I have no idea either yet. I mean, what you can do is you can massively increase the privacy of uh, Bitcoin transactions. No, um, I meant I had no idea you, that, this was, that this was going on. I can think of a lot of things you could do with it, right? It could enable right. just a lot more options when you're talking about transactions. And especially for things like payment channels that we've talked about before, there could be multiple conditions under which a payment could be sent, basically. And that's really useful. Yes. Yes. And the other thing is the scalability implications of this, because previously, if you had a very complex condition, as in if A or B and C or D and F, uh, then when you redeem, you have to present that entire thing 
and say, mm-hmm. here's the entire condition and, and here's how I redeem against that. Now you only need to say A and here's the hash of the rest of it just so you can confirm that A was part of it. And, and that becomes much, much smaller. So the, one of the benefits of Merkle trees is that you can produce a proof in the second logarithm of the number of elements. So for example, with just 10 hashes, you can show inclusion in a tree that has a thousand elements. I may be off on the math there. Don't, you know, don't focus too much on that. The point is that it's much more scalable. And so you can do this in a much more compact way. And then there's Schnorr signatures. What is that? Yeah, that sounds funny. What is that? (laughs) Schnorr signatures. Yes. This is named after a person because otherwise, if anybody came up with that name and it wasn't someone's person name, it would be ridiculous. Schnorr sign a a transaction in your sleep. I snore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Schnorr signatures, I think the best way to describe it is cumulative signatures. So let's say you have a 5 of 15 multisig. Rather than producing five separate signatures, you produce one signature that is the cumulative result of five signing operations. Ah, okay. So let's say a signature was 32 bytes. Um, instead of doing 5 times 32, you do 1 times 32, but that 32 is the result of five rounds of signing. And so now you could do thousands of signatures, and the end result is just the same as if you only had done one. Mm-hmm. And that fundamentally transforms the scaling. This is also one of the capabilities that is going to be introduced by Soft Fork, and that has massive implications for Bitcoin scalability. Let's go back to our original discussion. Yes. I believe the media narrative is Bitcoin is dead, innovation is stagnant, it's all about blockchain, ledger technology, Ethereum and the DAO. And yes, that is the narrative. (laughs) That could not be further from reality. There is no blockchain yet. There is no ledger technology yet. This is all still vaporware. There is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not stagnant. It's thriving from an engineering perspective. It's actually now affecting adjacent disciplines with its pace of innovation. And the core capabilities of Bitcoin, it's its ability to be a, a strong reserve currency and a very secure, very robust payment system are now, of course, feeding and building upon each other with things like Ethereum and the DAO. Because mm-hmm. Ethereum and the DAO are not instead of, they're as well as. They serve to prove why this matters. That's it for today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Stay tuned for episode 296 next week, where Andreas and Stephanie finish their conversation digging into Ethereum and the DAO. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas and Stephanie. Forgive my terrible microphone and the missing episode last week. I took an extra week off, and I'm still getting things set up again. The magic word for today's episode is Rhino. That's R-H-I-N-O. You've got a week. Let's talk Bitcoin.com. You know the deal. Things are going great with Tokenly. I'll have more on that and a real update soon. Thanks for listening.